Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The American Civil War stretched across the country from the Atlantic coast to the prairies of the Trans-Mississippi Theater, or so most of us think. But in fact, it went a lot further west. Oregon and California were states of the Union in 1861, and the effects of the war stretched across the Rockies to the Pacific coast. The state of Oregon responded to the nation's call to arms in 1861 by organizing a regiment of cavalry a unit whose story has remained in the shadows until the publication of On Duty in the Pacific Northwest During the Civil War, Correspondence and Reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. We'll talk with the book's editor, James Robbins Jewell, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina near but not on the campus of East Carolina University, not speaking for the university, my daytime employer, or for anyone else, just for myself and my guests, I know will do the same. Uh, Coming to you tonight from home, because if it's not one thing, it's another. This past week, I leaped up onto a stool to get something down for the holidays and mistimed my leap, or perhaps the stool moved of its own accord as I was in midair. I 
landed on the edge, fell down heavily to the ground, <clears throat> banged my shin against something solid, and uh, according to x-rays, did not quite fracture it, but did something to it. So I'm wearing a boot and using crutches to limp around, but still thankful uh, for the overall good health and uh, that, that uh, is, is still here, and uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday that just passed, having my uh, both of our daughters home for the holiday was a wonderful thing. Thankful that the college football season is over. Uh, no joy in the last week for any of my teams, so we're not going to talk about that tonight. But instead, uh, since we had no live show last week in Thanksgiving of 2019, tonight uh, have to catch up on two major stories in Civil War happenings. Uh, both of them uh, leaving me almost at a loss for words uh, in, in terms of how appalling the behavior involved is. Uh, the first one has to do with the Gettysburg Address. As you all know, there are only five copies of the address in the actual handwriting of Abraham Lincoln. Each one of them is different. He kept editing it even after he delivered the address. And one of those resides in Illinois at the Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield. And it's there all the time. It's their, the crown jewel of their collection, of anyone's collection. It's a utterly priceless document. They did, uh, they have in the past lent it out to the Gettysburg Foundation in 2008 and to the Chicago History Museum in 2009. Those are the only two times that it has been out of the uh, possession of the museum since it was obtained in 1944. Until uh, very recently, in the last year or so, I guess last year, 2018, the director of the museum decided that without following any of the procedures involved in making a loan of an artifact, much less a loan of the artifact, uh, he would simply send it off to a sort of pseudo-museum in Texas run by a, a radio commentator, not a museum professional. It's not an actual accredited museum at all. It's just kind of a uh, hard to tell what it is. I looked online at its website. It certainly doesn't look anything like a museum. Uh, but this project somehow got the director's ear and... Uh, he decided to go ahead and send off the Gettysburg Address. Uh, when this became known, <clears throat> uh, well, the, the outcome was that this past September 2019, the director was abruptly fired by the governor. There was no announcement why at the time, uh, but it, it turns out this was why. He had, uh, against all procedures, taken the state of Illinois' most precious possession, indeed one of the most precious of the American people, and uh, sent it off willy-nilly to, uh, I guess, a political crony. And, uh, you know, it came back, fortunately, safely. But I worked in a museum for a better part of a decade. And I recall the procedures we had to go through when we wanted to borrow something or that we put others through when we wanted to lend something. You have all kinds of uh, professional level safeguards that have to be followed to make sure that the setting it goes into is appropriately secure, the environment is proper, uh, there are insurance considerations and transportation and, and uh, lighting and humidity and environment, everything has to be 
just so before you lend something and you have to comply with everything before you can borrow something. And here this thing went off on a, a weekend jaunt, essentially. <clears throat> Apparently the director tried to do it with some other things and the museum's professional staff stopped him. But uh, he has justly been fired. And uh, it's just breathtaking to imagine the a Lincoln handwritten copy of the Gettysburg Address being uh, misused in this fashion. Uh, less shocking, in part because it, well, well, actually, the shock value is lessened partly by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum itself, which has been ridden with corruption and politics and venality since it opened in the early 21st century when the, the first governor, the first, uh, when it first opened, the governor uh, I guess convict now, governor then, attempted to appoint his chief of staff to run the museum. Uh, somebody with no academic or museum or history experience at all, but who needs it? It's just a museum, uh, just about Abraham Lincoln, so just pick pick a political crony, have him run it. That fortunately was stopped, but the museum has suffered one uh, ludicrous political fiasco after another over the years. I have a brother who lives in Illinois, uh, very smart person who has gone libertarian in his older years, which I can only account for by the fact he's lived in Illinois too long, where government corruption really does make you wonder if government is a good thing after all. For me, studying Abraham Lincoln and seeing what good government can do, I don't follow that political philosophy uh, and, and don't sympathize with it, but I can I can see Illinois is certainly Exhibit A and and the Lincoln Museum, the, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum, is, is Exhibit A of Exhibit A. Well, they got the exhibit back. They got the uh, they, they got the Gettysburg Address back. I'm not sure who's running the place now, but uh, well, it's we'll move on. Uh, equally shocking, except for the fact that it's happened in North Carolina, where nothing shocks me anymore, is the disposition of the statue formerly known as Silent Sam, the memorial to Confederates from the University of North Carolina, which the university community, the administration, faculty, students, community members, in general, uh, by a wide majority apparently, wanted to get off of campus, no longer felt that honoring the Confederacy in that fashion was the appropriate way to remember the Civil War, to pick one side, the losing side at that, and focus all honor on them. Uh, the statue has been in storage for a couple of years, and Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, the way you announce things when you don't want anyone to notice, a surreptitious press release came out announcing the university had agreed to turn over the statue to the Sons of Confederate Veterans who don't own the statue or didn't. It was given to the university by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But somehow there was a transfer from the daughters to the sons that no one knows about. According to the consent decree, the SCV now owns the interest in the monument. The university will give it to them. The SCV will maintain it, build a museum to house it, not in any of the 14 counties where the UNC system has an institution, not here in Pitt County with ECU, out of fear the students and faculty and others would create another disturbance. 
But somewhere in the state, uh, the SCV will get $2.5 million from UNC Chapel Hill to preserve and protect this monument. The the report says these will be non-state dollars, but that means what exactly? Uh, from private donors, maybe? Interest income? Student fees? Uh, but the shocking thing is, money that allegedly is supposed to go for education to the University of North Carolina is going to be diverted to the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Uh, uh, this neo-Confederate uh, survivors group, they're going to get $2.5 million when, uh, uh, the, well, again, I'm, words are failing me. Um, according to the SCV leader in a separate article I read, he said they were delighted with this and they were going to use the money to build a building to protect Silent Sam that would also serve as their headquarters. So the state is going to build them a headquarters with money, well, I guess it's not theoretically state money, but it's university money. Uh, in universities, we have all the money we need. We can certainly afford to throw that around. ECU just finished a salary study here showing that our average faculty salaries have gone up 1.5% annually over 10 years. Inflation has gone up 1.8%, so we're making less money each year than the year before. The median income uh, uh, across the university for all faculty is 79K. Uh, and since that includes the doctors at the med school, the real Median is quite a bit lower. I know in our history department it's lower than 79, which is why I do not advise my students to seek a PhD in history. Uh, let me be clear, I'm not complaining. I love what I do. I left the law and entered history with eyes wide open knowing this is what it pays. And I would do it again. But I tell my students don't do it. And if they take that advice, that means they're making the right choice. It's only the student who knows the bad odds, knows the low payoff even if you win, and still feels history is the only thing they were born to do, that it really has a chance of succeeding. Um, so they're the ones who will go in even after I tell them not to do it. Well, enough looking back. Uh, let's look ahead. Next week on the show, Kevin Levin, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth will be our guest, and then we'll take a winter break, come back in January with four new shows, read about them on www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page, donate to the show through the website, and so on. I've talked too much. I'm going to introduce our guest tonight. We'll take a break right after that and then talk about his book. Our guest tonight is James Robbins Jewell. He's the editor of On Duty in the Pacific Northwest During the Civil War, Correspondence and Reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. Mr. Jewell, are you there? Well, you're at home. I'm actually here in the office. Oh, good for you. I, I respect that. I'm usually in the office on Wednesday night, but... But tonight, uh, the leg is, is crippled up, and I'm wearing a boot and keeping it uh, out of harm's way. Where is the office? Where are you located? Uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I am uh, about 100 meters west of Lake Coeur d'Alene, in a, or um, north of Lake Coeur d'Alene, and about 120 meters east of the Spokane River, right on a point wow. there. Wow. That, that sounds like a, a lovely setting, I can only imagine. It, it it's it's pretty aesthetic around here, yes. Uh, it, it's it's good and flat here in eastern North Carolina. The, the, the ocean's nice, but uh, but we're in the flat part of the state. Well, the 
the state is not one that people think of when they think of the, the Civil War. So in two minutes, justify why we need to know about Oregon and the Civil War. Well, Oregon and the entire far west, which was the uh, subject of my dissertation. So uh, the troops themselves would have said, in retrospect, when they look back and try to maybe explain their service to their neighbors, was that for every one of them that stayed here, that freed up somebody that was from the regular army to go and serve in the east. And they particularly pointed to the number of prominent officers that had been out here at the west at the eve of the war. And and then they were probably less aware, I think, in the connection, and more we are more so now. And what the government, in trying to expand federal authority over a uh, not compliant South, was also doing some of the same sorts of things in the West. Although their target there was Native Americans who were rather obviously defending their lands and discouraging uh, white encroachment in state and federal leaders both saw that as obstructionism of the advancement of modernization uh, and certainly the, what the Oregon Cavalry and then later the infantry and the, the Washington Territorial Infantry and all the California units did was in part to open up uh, more of the West, the far West, to white expansion and development. And well, if you... Go ahead. I'm sorry, it, it is a... a it is really an important story uh, after all, and one that I learned by reading this book, and we'll share more of that with our guests. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and give a, a fair chance to our guests tonight uh, to talk more about on duty in the Pacific Northwest during the Civil War, correspondence and reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. Our guest is James Robbins Jewell, editor of the book. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James Robbins Jewell, editor of On Duty in the Pacific Northwest During the Civil War, Correspondence and Reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. Uh, Dr. Jewell, we got... Uh, cut off you. You had the bad fortune to be uh, on the show tonight when there were two huge uh, current stories that, that just caused me to to bubble over like an actual talk radio guy and start ranting. Um, but let me ask you uh, uh, how how you got to this book. What what brought you mentioned in the first section? This was originally your dissertation. What what brought you to the topic? Uh, well, this is an outgrowth of my dissertation, to, to be precise. Um, mm-hmm. My dissertation was on the entire Department of the Pacific during the Civil War, in which that is now working its way through the process of being a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was doing the research for that, I was lacking in some first-person perspective, as I'm trying to write about the experience out here in the Far West. And there was, you know, by, by Civil War standards, let's be clear, we all live in a topic that is absolutely just flush with sources mm-hmm. because so much was written. But Californians wrote not a lot because there was only 20-some thousand of them, perhaps. And so I had some of those, but I had very little sources from the Northwest. And so in looking around for that, I started to find drips and clues of stuff and pursued that for more, and when the dissertation was done and, and careers put everything in the back shelf, I kind of came back to you know, this first-person idea because I hadn't seen much of anything. There's two books that have been published. One was about a Californian that served at Fort Yom Hill, and then uh, there was a, an Oregon infantryman whose diary was published. And that's been it for anybody that served out here. Fortunately, uh, a really excellent master's thesis from 1960 by uh, the late uh, Glenn Thomas Edwards uh, used a lot of the newspaper articles. But that was a day and age when it wasn't as convenient as it is today, frankly, to find them. Mm-hmm. And you know, he did excerpts, whereas I had the advantages of you know everything being microfilmed and some things now online, and was able to track down far more than, than Tom did. And 
I wasn't interested in excerpts. I was interested in the entirety of the pieces. And so I found the 40-odd that I did. I, I actually found two more, um, but one was about a, a veteran a cavalryman wrote about the celebration of Washington's birthday and added nothing else to the story. So I, I chose to le- leave that out. And the other one was very brief. But the, uh, the 40-plus I have here from the newspaper articles. And then also... Um, Tom Edwards had used two speeches by Oregon veterans from the post-war years, and that led me to start looking around through, are there any more post-war reminiscences? And uh, one was turned over to the Oregon Historical Society. I want to say it was the late 90s, and that was the, one, the extensive enlisted men's uh, diary slash letter slash memoir that's, that's in the book. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the fragmentary ones were just uh, some combination of diligence and dumb luck in tracking down old newspapers. Now, the the bulk of the book does consist of these letters written during the war. And most of them, as you point out, I want to ask you about this, are letters to newspapers. Uh, then you've mm-hmm. also got these post-war reminiscences. But it, I want to make it clear to the listeners, it's not just a, a collection of these uh, primary sources, but they're there's extensive commentary uh, around them. I, I rather liked, uh, it, it's not so much commentary through them. Uh, sometimes you get the annotated uh, letters where there's a footnote after every sentence or every other word explaining what it is. Then you're turning back and forth and back and forth. And here we have these fairly extensive introductions to yeah. uh, different topics. And then the, then you let the, the letters, writers, and reminiscence authors speak for themselves. So we get their real voices coming through as well as your context for what they had to do. I, th- I thought that was a good approach. Yeah, I, I, when I looked about how to do it, I thought that would be something I, I would want to do because that way if I did it up front in the, in the first three chapters that corresponded with the years of service and the years those were written, then it was easier for a reader to follow the first person accounts that came afterwards. And, and, I, and hopefully it's successful that way. I, I think it is. The uh, One other thing I want to say about the, the book as a book is this had some of the toughest shrink wrap I've ever encountered uh, <laughs> trying to get the book open. University of Tennessee Press has published it, uh, done an outstanding job. It's a very handsome book, nicely bound and, and so on. But, man, I had to you know, wrestle with, with the uh, the plastic to get into it. Uh, but having done so, it was rewarding. I, I enjoyed reading it. Let me, let's start with the, the story itself, going back to the Pacific Northwest before the war. Uh, how, how remote a region are we talking about? How many people live there, both uh, Euro-Americans and Indians? Uh, what, how big is this place? Uh, so first off, the state of Oregon is create, created in 59, but we're really also talking about Washington Territory, which then included a big chunk of Idaho and before that becomes its own territory. Um, and so it's an even more extensive region that they're going to end up serving in than might seem at first by saying the Oregon Cavalry, the cavalry because they were certainly serving really in what became four states, a little bit of California and Nevada, a little bit. Uh, Oregon and Idaho. They did send some troops up to Washington, but um, very limited service there and almost no coverage in the material I have that was included in the book. But uh, in terms of native population, I don't know for sure. Um, Obviously, it had been shrinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And the Oregon population, this is not Washington Territory, but the Oregon state population had been about 12,000 around 1850 or 51. And then as the gold rush reality set in, a lot of miners went north. There were a number of minor strikes that drew people. But more importantly, uh, the farming capability of what we might call the I-5 corridor today, Interstate 5, Mm -hmm. that goes north to south through the state on the western side. Uh, and that's a great farming farming lands, and so that drew people in that that you know didn't succeed in in the mining endeavors, or later on just migrated across that they had heard about the opportunity for good farming in that west of the Cascades. So the Oregon's population is grows dramatically in the eighteen fifties. Uh, I was interested to read the description of politics there. I. I knew that uh, the Oregon Constitution of 1859 prohibited the settlement of African Americans in the state, yep. but I didn't realize how how divided the state was over the issue of slavery itself. And, and really, it, it, if you look at just the surface of who's in charge, it's amazing that it didn't come in uh, more stridently. I mean, it's pretty pretty bad as it is, but the leadership is all Southern pro-slavery when it's in its initial uh, statehood first two years. And when the war happens, actually it sort of changes the politics as the war goes on, it becomes uh, less of those, they, they were calling them copperheads, of course, um, like, like the governor, mm-hmm. uh, John Whitaker is a uh, interesting character. Uh, and so was the response to him before he finally left office. But you know, he's, he's one of several, and initially all, state-level or federal appointees are elected. So that the one House member, the two senators, and the governor were all Southern supporters at the outset of the war. And so it's not surprising that you ended up with legislation the way it was. I mean, the, those people came out of, a, out of a population that was certainly a significant a minority, but a significant minority of Southerners that had migrated to Oregon. So the, the, the Constitution uh, does prohibit slavery, but <coughs> excuse me, but also prohibits uh, uh, black settlement. Then you have the you know Fort Sumter, as you point out, changes the dynamic uh, throughout the North entirely uh, in terms of rallying support for the federal government. Uh, so Lincoln calls for volunteers, uh, calls out the militia. What was the quota of the state of Oregon in that first? call for troops? How many regiments were they expected to furnish? Well, first off, Oregon, of course, is not part of the first call for uh, volunteers. That, that doesn't go out, extend to Oregon. California gets the first Western call in, in July, and then Oregon follows after that. Uh, they were looking to bring in a, a full regiment, you know, full so, regiment of cavalry is 10... I guess I'm really throwing a trick question. The answer is zero. They they weren't they were not part of the call at all. Um, no, no, not not in the first two waves. In the first, so it's not until later in the war, some months go by before they they begin to organize. Early fall of '61 is the one that Oregon okay. is called upon. I see. So so how so? But they've got a, a, a copperhead governor, and <laughs> and the governors are the ones who organize the regiments. How did that work? Well, f- the first effort is actually initiated by the local commander, the, 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 the District of Oregon commander, later the Department of the entire Pacific Department, uh, George Wright, uh, 
asked the governor for a company of cavalry. He admits, you know, they've just taken too many troops out of here, regulars out of here. We, we can't protect the region. And so he asked the governor, Governor Whitaker, if he will uh, raise a company, just, just a company of troops. And, and Whitaker says yes, but he had no intention of doing it, so he appoints a political crony to be in charge of the effort, a guy named Dennison. And, and it, it's a charade from the beginning. By the time they finally pull the plug in the charade, he's only raised, I think, a dozen guys and cost the state of Oregon, build them for about $2,000. And at that point, it's obvious to the War Department and to General Wright, well, Colonel Wright at that time, that they need somebody else to be in charge. Which, who do you get to do it that you can trust? You can't trust the governor. They need a, what clearly is a true Lincoln man. Enter Oregon Senator Edward Baker of uh-huh. Balls Bluff fame and death. But that's a really unwieldy position. Baker is now back east serving as a colonel. As, you know, it's going to lead to his death eventually. Mm-hmm. And he initially is the, the contact. The communication is supposed to go to him and through him, then back to the people in Oregon who are raising the regiment. He, he takes on the responsibility of saying who should be in charge of recruiting the regiment. So you're trusting a Lincoln guy to go find, uh, hopefully like-minded or at least neutral, to raise a regiment and avoid the governor and all of his political cronies, copperheads. And that unwieldy arrangement lasts only until Baker's death. And then, then it's just the War Department takes over and tells the, the people, the three guys that were selected by Baker to report directly to the War Department. And then it, beca- then it becomes a, a pretty standard operation after that, with the governor being excluded, though. So, at what point do the does the regiment actually take shape, begin to serve? Are we still in 1861? Do we get into 1862 by this time? For the first uh, recruits come in in 61, but it's it's certainly not anywhere near uh, enough to form it into a regiment. They're still in the organizing them locally phase. No uniforms, no weapons issued. I mean, it's this is just hey, let's all try to get them on the pay, on the books on paper. And then we'll bring them together physically in 1862, which is ultimately what happens. You begin to see in the spring of 62 um, early efforts to organize them locally, but not to bring them together, which mm-hmm. is a practical matter because of, of the weather. Uh, snow separates them from the, the interior forts. Uh, the western side of the Cascades has lots of rain, and it ended up being one of those once-in-a-generation flooding seasons. And so it wasn't practical to get them all together at any one point uh, until right around May they make real concerted efforts to put the companies that they did have, which is not all 10. They did not get to 10. And they have to own that reality and, and say, we're going to raise this regiment at a reduced number of six. But do you, even with small. only six companies, even with only six, who volunteers? Who, who wants to serve in this unit? You know, in reading through other accounts, and, I, and I've you know, uh, edited a diary from another trooper years ago, and mm-hmm. there's a few of those out there. And then there's the Oregon Adjutant General Report, where the officers wrote back in in 66. You, know, you pick up you know, pretty standard things. McPherson points this out in one of those little small books of his about mm-hmm. what motivated him. You know, it, it's patriotism to be sure. They, they, they tap, recruiters tap into that. But early on, whether by 
design or truly not knowing themselves, recruiters suggested that the Oregon troopers would form and then be sent to the east to fight Confederates. So you have that motivation. Uh, later on, they start using patriotism because it's pretty clear by, eh, by mid 62, they're not going to be sent east. And mm-hmm. then as the war drags on, the war years, um, and they start using bounties. Uh, theirs happened to include land, not just money. Most of the other states just did money. Uh, and then also uh, those bounties from the state were supplemented by locals who might get, you know, we might call them the Chamber of Commerce today to get together and, and pledge some money to, to enhance what the state was putting forward. Because the state wasn't paying very much. It was only paying about $150 for a bounty. So you've got patriotism, the chance to fight in the East, and then good old-fashioned pay. And you, you describe, and uh, one of your correspondents, I should say, describes how uh, uh, when the troops find out they're not going east, uh, a lot of them are disgruntled. They, they try to refuse their pay. They're, they're not going to serve. And uh, they end up finding out, no, you don't get to choose where you serve when you're in the Army. Uh, yeah. You are going to serve whether you like it or not. What I want to do next is come back and ask you uh, what, what service they actually did, what goes on in uh, the the Pacific Northwest during the war. What encounters? Uh, who who do who do they fight? Who do they protect? Uh, where do they go? So we'll tackle those questions when we come back in just a moment. Talking tonight with James Robbins Jewell. He's the editor of On Duty in the Pacific Northwest during the Civil War. Correspondence and reminiscences of the First Oregon Cavalry Regiment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking this evening with James Robbins Jewell, editor of On Duty in the Pacific Northwest during the Civil War, Correspondence and Reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. Uh, We've been talking about this regiment raised uh, at the beginning of the war to uh, secure the western flank, as it were, of the United States. But uh, the, the book consists not just of the uh, the, the writing of the author, who tells us uh, the context of what's happening, but includes letters uh, and uh, reminiscences written by the men themselves. And I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, the the letters are letters to newspapers. You describe these soldiers as being like today's embedded media, uh, traveling with the troops. Uh, are, are they actually working for the newspapers when they write these letters? What are the circumstances of these documents? Of course, since they're anonymous, we can't be certain, but it appears they were not indeed employed by any of the newspapers. This was just something they were doing on their own uh, in violation of military military law, by the way. This was not something they were supposed to be doing. There are a number of penalties that could have been punished. That's why they write anonymously, mm-hmm. with, with very few exceptions. Occasionally, a senior officer might post what might be more, more a statement or, or a report. But um, no, they weren't. They weren't working for the newspapers. It was just a way, at least not that I've found. Uh, but they were aware the, of the interest in what was happening because these were areas of Eastern Oregon or uh, Western Idaho that had not been explored, and this was pretty standard fare. Uh, the papers in this area at that time often had uh, letters from whatever insert region within, you know, some, usually the mining districts, they would have those to give sort of the updates. And so, um, certainly not trained in any way. Uh, editors obviously made some changes to what was sent to them. That's the one thing where there's no way for us to know how much was changed in terms of uh, style. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they, they reflect the, the, the time or maybe the editor's, it made it seem as though it reflect the times in terms of language is rather effusive and um, can be occasionally a little flowery. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the, but but, for the most part, they, were, they stayed on task. Now, how many newspapers were there for them to write to in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, yeah, I, can't, I, I can't say today that when I was doing the research, I could have told you, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I, it, it just seems like it's a frontier community. Do they, they have any newspapers at all? It's a little surprising. Uh, Oregon and Washington does not. There are, in Washington Territory, which did not include Idaho, which gets two uh, after it's, it breaks off from Washington. Uh, but Washington Territory had a, 
about eight or nine. Uh, Idaho Territory has two uh, in Lewiston and then Boise uh, or, or nearby. And then Oregon, it's, it's up and down, again, it's sort of west of the Cascades. And then Vancouver, the Dalles, uh, Canyon City, which is more central, uh, all had papers. And so, so, you know, it's a surprising number considering how few yeah. the population was. And no, there was an appetite for it because they were able to f- keep them afloat for at least a few years. I mean, some of these were rather fluid. The only one still around is the, for sure, is the Portland Oregonian. Hmm. So the the, uh, the soldiers are out there. You've got these companies, and, and you point out they're scattered essentially as yes. companies so the regiment doesn't fight as a block. Uh, do they actually see any action at all between, in, in, in terms of, do they actually fight with anyone between 1862 and, and the end of the war? Yeah, you know, the Oregon Cavalry, their military experience looks a lot like the both pre- and post-war uh, U.S. military in the West, in mm-hmm. that they have running skirmishes that don't wouldn't amount to a battle by any means, and then occasionally... Mm-hmm. Uh, you have larger skirmishes, which they'll kind of refer to as battles, although I almost never give anything a name, so even they recognize that the scale is so much less. Uh, the fight on the Crooked River, where the largest number of Oregonian cavalrymen die in one day, which is, uh, you know, you've got the, uh, an officer and three men, and then a, a, three scouts, eventually three scouts, one mortally wounded, um, is the bloodiest day of the war for the Oregon cavalry. So it's not exactly... Uh, large-scale combat. It's the pretty traditional hit-and-run. A lot of shooting, not always a lot of contact. Mm -hmm. Um, And... And who are they shooting at? Paiute Paiute Indians, for the most part, who they rather derisively refer to as snakes, Mm -hmm. uh, which which that term isn't just Paiutes, by the way, that they'll extend that to pretty much uh, a large number of Shoshones and and other... uh, State, you know, so the Californians were referred to Paiutes down there, but also Bannocks and Shoshones as snakes. It's a rather ubiquitous term that is sort of use um, to lump almost all tribes that are resisting. Uh, and most of the combat that happens is against Paiutes. Yeah, it's interesting again, how. I'd say how much politics there was. That the, these are hostile Indians, but there are other Indians that they're trying to keep the peace with. That are, are yeah. Are, most prominently, ahead. the Nez Perce, who mm-hmm. who are. I mean, the re, there's a reason why they're they're meeting to and treat with them and doing their best to keep white miners off Nez Perce lands because the Nez Perce are powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, taking all of the the sub tribal units together, it, it's by the standards out here, pretty large tribe, and they had maintained you know, positive relations with whites from the Lewis and Clark days, and they wanted to continue that because they were very nervous about what the Nez Perce would do if they suddenly got fed up with white encroachment. And I think things bear it out when the military got involved because white miners finally crossed the line one too many times with the Nez Perce in 1877. You know, that the evidence of the Nez Perce War of that year suggests that if you'd have gone 15 years earlier with an even smaller population of whites in the area with an even smaller military force to try to defend those white interlopers, things would have gone very badly. And so they do um, as much as they can. I mean, they send out 
Indian agents, they send the, most of the regiment forms at one point sort of to impress upon them the, the might, if you will, of the Oregon Cavalry it, as, as somewhat comical as that is because they're going to almost <laughs> immediately have to disperse them. Like it, it was almost a matter of, you see, see this large group of our cavalry companies together, you should be very impressed, but look quick because we're going to send them in various <laughs> directions as soon as we can. But there they are. Briefly, you can see our, our mighty warriors all assembled. Yes. Uh, but they, they have so many tasks, tasks as you point out, to, to uh, uh, protect migrants, uh, the wagon trains of settlers moving in from hostile Indians, but also to protect the allied Indians against the miners who are encroaching on the Indian land. It, it is a confusing situation. One of the points you make that I thought was quite interesting is that while the, the combat they engage in is, is negligible by Eastern standards, um, well, actually, this is a point that I thought, was that, it sure, it's not Antietam or the second and third day at Gettysburg when three guys are killed and five are wounded, but you know exactly who those three guys are. Uh, yep. These are not anonymous lives. This is a small unit, and everybody knows everybody, so it... Uh, it's no less painful for the relatives of, of someone killed in the Pacific Northwest than it is in Pickett's Charge. Yeah, as, as one, of the, one of the writers pointed out in the post-war uh, reminiscences, is that you know, serving out in the Pacific Northwest and, and dying in that service was no different than anybody serving in the Army of the Potomac and dying. On the grand scale, clearly that's not true because of the numbers, but for the individual, as you point out, their mm-hmm. families and the people that knew them, and because of the, the close relationship, and in this close relationship, I'm, yeah, I, I've been asked to sort of pursue this as a monograph to kind of build upon the, the parts of the book that precede the, the chapters on the, the letters to build that out into mm-hmm. a monograph. And what I, my plan is to do that is, be, is through the voices of these junior officers who are all very well tied together. So when Stephen Watson is killed... All these guys knew him, even though they, mm-hmm. they served and their companies are stationed all over. It was a fluid arrangement where company A and D might flip from being stationed at Fort Dallas one year, and then the other one goes to Fort Walla Walla, which is in the southeast of Washington. And that one that had been there ends up in Fort Dallas, which is on the Columbia River uh, at the same time. So they all knew each other very well. And so when Stephen Watson gets killed, they name their summer-long uh, encampment after him. You know, they build him up for, with corrals and stuff. They, they leave. It's a supply depot. So they have, so they have Camp Watson. You know, you're not going to see a lieutenant get killed at Gettysburg and have any of their encampments named after him. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. Now, one of the other services that they perform, we just got a few minutes left, but I didn't want to leave this out. You point out they actually, it's not their mission, but inadvertently by traveling where they do and through the wilderness and writing about it and bringing back reports on it, they actually serve as a sort of exploratory core for the, for the community. In a, in a long term, that probably is the most important thing they do, even though they would have not recognized it. And initially, I think by 63 and certainly 64, they know because Lieutenant Colonel Charles Drew who's serving in the southern part of Oregon at, at Fort Klamath, which they built. That was another thing they did, town building. They built Klamath Falls. They built Boise, uh, or the origins of. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, he leaves on his part of this, this big campaign they have planned by their standards for the, 
three-pronged campaign for the summer. And his report uh, later appears serially in the newspapers in the uh, Klamath region because it talks about all the land to the east and what what you can expect. Is it farmable? Is there is there anybody chance any ore strikes? Is it and can you use it for grain for uh, grazing uh, cattle? And so this this becomes something that they are aware of by the time their service is over. But it's certainly not something they had anticipated or really were thrilled about at the beginning. But it, it's probably the, in the long term maybe the most important thing they do. After the war, do, do they carry any extra political weight? You know, we, uh, Susanna Earle's wonderful book about Hood's Texas Brigade shows how, after the war, service in that brigade was was important to political success in Texas. Um, did, did these men have any any extra weight in Oregon politics after the war? It, it, it's kind of complicated because certainly at the beginning of the years immediately afterwards. The, their service almost gets ignored. There was so much interest in these anonymous correspondence during the war. And then afterwards, increasingly, it's, nobody seems aware to the culminates in the 1901 where the, the little newspaper battle where former sergeant is battling with a newspaper editor who says, what did you guys do? <laughs> and, but, he, but he was a state senator. And so mm-hmm. a number of them do hold political office, and not just in Oregon, by the way, in other places as well, uh, after the war. But it's not the most powerful calling card or vote getter by just mentioning, oh, I was in the first Oregon Cavalry or perhaps the first Oregon Infantry. But as the years go on and they get from a 1901, this this moment of this confrontation in the press, it starts to pop up more and more in the last stages of their political careers of of the guys that are on their way out of the the public arena because they're they're, they're aging out. Um, Mm -hmm. But for a long time, it wasn't. But by the end, yes, it, it is mentioned but it's always buried in their bios. It's not at the top. So it, it's uh, the memory changes and enhances the. They remember with advantages the the deeds they did, but still, uh, it's a remote frontier. But as remote as it is, uh, your your book brings it uh, to life. You, you say you're you're working on a monograph that will uh, trace this story further, and we just have like fifteen seconds to yeah to, yeah, to yeah that's, that's that. the plan. I, I've yeah, I've talked to, and I don't, you know, it's more in the talking stage, so I don't want to say which press, but they've asked me to see uh-huh. if I would be interested in following this out to a monograph, and I, I'm hoping to do that starting this fall. Well, if uh, that will be something to look forward to, and in the meantime, uh, I can recommend to listeners, if you want to know what happened in the Pacific Northwest, and it's certainly, uh, there is a story there, uh, as, as little as one might suspect it. Uh, there is, and our, our guest tonight, James Robbins Jewell, has found it. It's in his book, On Duty in the Pacific Northwest During the Civil War, Correspondence and Reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. Dr. Jewell, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you, and uh, be careful at home around jumping from one piece of furniture to the other. <laughs> I'm going to remain entirely stationary. Uh, listeners, I recommend you do the same. And thank you all for listening, as always, to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.